0: Today's guest is any award-winning game designer who you probably know best for his work on Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd and 4th edition, and as a cartographer who worked on the Critical Role's Tal'Dorei setting. He also has the Lawhammer YouTube channel and is the CEO of Rookery Publications. We simply know was an all-round talented git and a shouty Scotsman from Edinburgh, Mr Andy Law.
1: That's me, shouty! <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so as we've discussed, we've got an, an A or B, right? So just pick one or the other. We don't have to talk about it, though we invariably end up do because people make some odd choices with these AO, AOBs. And I think Griff's got those, haven't you, Griff?
2: I have, and this 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 pod, they are Warhammer themed.
1: Oh, excellent.
2: Not 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 the not the usual rubbish we ask people. <laughs> okay then. So would you rather theatre of the mind or miniatures and a ruler?
1: Oh that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if I'm only choosing one, theatre of the mind.
0: The right okay. choice. It is. Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Although that's a real toughie. Um uh I I like miniatures. I think miniatures can bring an awful lot to a game. Um, and at the moment, because I'm doing the online version of role playing, um, it helps a lot for the visualization of people who are watching a stream to have miniatures moving around. On mm. We just got little printed tokens. Um, we are obviously quite aware that a lot of people listen to these sort of actual plays and not watch them at all so we have to be relatively aware of the theater of the mind as well at all times so that people can hopefully follow what we're doing but i will admit to having a certain childhood love of pushing little miniatures around and stomping bad guys in a slightly more 3d fashion rather than just sticking to everything in the head but ultimately the vast majority of my role play over the course of I don't know how many years now. You, you too know how many
0: years. <laughs> I do, but there's too much grey in my beard
1: to admit it. All those years have been mostly theatre of the mind. That's a good one. I mean, I, I
2: I love miniatures because, and I like to play with miniatures because I like an excuse to buy miniatures. Mm. And. <laughs> uh,
1: I wish I needed one.
2: <laughs> do you do you paint? Do you paint? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I paint. Um uh, my old Lawhammer blog, which is where we took the Lawhammer name for the actual play game that I'm doing, um, was originally set up because my daughter started collecting Warhammer. Um mm-hmm. and it got me back into it again. I'd uh, worked for Games Workshop at that point, what, three times and in, in and out of the company for doing different things. Um and it got me back into Warhammer in a way that I hadn't been for at that point about I don't know it must be a good almost 10 years mm. um and it dragged me back in kicking and screaming um create built myself an Empire army I, again it's not the first <laughs> time i built one of those um and Uh, I really kind of never stopped I've had long periods where I've not painted largely because I'm old now and my eyesight's not what it used to be and painting is an awful lot more difficult than it used to be but I still can't help myself I've got miniatures scattered around all over my shelves over there Um, I will admit to having a particular love for X-Wing as well though because they're pre-painted and there's a certain joy in having something pre-painted that if you wanted you could paint yourself too if you want Mm. to have a prettier one or an depending on your painting skills. A less pretty one that's a different color. But there is a certain love of X Men, particularly because it's such a neatly designed game as well. But yes, I collect miniatures. Do
0: you know what though? The, the miniatures are so good these days as well, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Compared to what they were like back in the day. It's
1: so easy to convert and kit bash in comparison to what it used to be. I mean, I remember, mm. I remember a long time ago, um, one of my business partners is Mark Gibbons, who you may or may not know as an artist Yeah. of many a wonderful uh, games workshop piece of art, particularly through the nineties, um, and then he moved off to places like uh, Sony and Riot Games and, I don't know, World of Warcraft and all that sort of stuff. Um, And he did a picture of Mephiston uh, for the Blood Angels. And the miniature that got released from Mephiston just didn't do the art justice. It just didn't do it as well. The new model is gorgeous and matches the art really well. Um, Mark's art as well. It matches it almost pose for pose. But the old one didn't. So I spent what must have been freaking back in ages <laughs> trying to make that metal miniature look like the sort of swiping its face blood angel mephistone that um, was uh, yeah that that was uh, that was hard I ended up taking bits from various cloaks to extend it to give that wind whippy thing that Mark mm-hmm. loves in his art because if it's not being whipped in a wind what's the point of having a <laughs> um uh, but the basic miniature didn't have that and trying to do that with metal models was at absolute nightmare it took me over three months to do the conversion um and if it was today to do the similar thing with plastic it would take me an evening you just kit bash it all together you'd cut it snip 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 pop it together job's a goodin um mm. so the differences between what used to be converting your models and what is nowadays converting models is almost like night and day it's so easy mm. now
0: mm-hmm. yeah but you can you can also 3d print as well can't you you can 3d print bit you need if you need to
1: that would require me to actually make my 3D printer work. Well, I mean, I've got I one. I don't even have one. <laughs> I've got one. Have I used it? No. How long no. have I had it? A year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, that, 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 that's a you problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're not really wrong about that one. It's definitely a me problem.
0: Go <laughs> on,
2: Griff. What's the next one? Okay, then. A lovely day out at the Imperial Zoo. Mm-hmm. For- or a pub crawl on the Strait of a Hundred Taverns?
1: Imperial Zoo, Um, Strait of a Hundred Taverns would grow old relatively quickly and remind me of being a student um, and ultimately wouldn't be anything particularly new. Um, You know, a few pub brawls, because inevitably it's Warhammer. You'd see some interesting things as a tourist of the old world, a few extra species. Oh, look, there's a dwarf. There's some halflings. It's an elf. Where if you went to the Imperial Zoo, the entire range of old world goodies and creatures and various weirdness would be on display. Certainly something that would be an eye full of gorgeous gems to stock up in your memory. So for me, most certainly the zoo. I I think you'd
0: be less likely to get food poisoning at the zoo as well, wouldn't you? More
1: likely to die, though. (laughs)
0: That's true. (laughs) Next question, would you... Would you rather take a
2: role on the arm critical hit table or the leg critical hit table?
1: Oh, it's much of a muchness actually Um, eh, leg. Um, I use my arms much more for writing and uh, arty (laughs) things and maps, where my legs, you know, I've been really ill these past few years because I got COVID really badly on the um, first run through right at the very first time. And it took me a big time. I was out for six months. It probably took me down. Yeah, I was like, it almost killed me. I was that close. Um, I survived, which is good. But ever since then, I've been a little bit... Even walking for about six months after that six months, I couldn't walk more than about 500 metres without gasping for breath. Um, That was bad. And I just, to make matters more fun over Christmas, had COVID again. Yay! Um, My Christmas (laughs) sucked. Um, And then because I'm diabetic as well, I got um, a chest infection uh, right after that because of the COVID. And I'm just on the receiving end. If I cough, I apologise. I think... It's mostly clear, but I can feel it constantly going. I
0: want to cough. You know, funnily, I was in hospital last year, and I caught COVID while I was in hospital.
1: Mm-mm.
0: So I had, I had I got sepsis in my leg. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah. It, I was, I was, I was a day away from being taken take to intensive care, and I caught COVID and I had no symptoms.
1: Oh, no symptoms at all. Interesting.
0: Yeah, my, but my missus got it in the. Remember, it was the the March, wasn't it? That it all went yeah. kind of yep. loony. That Christmas, my missus got a flu and she couldn't taste anything.
1: Could have been an early covid? Yeah. Yeah,
0: she had early covid, yeah. So Yeah,
1: yeah. How the lucky there. Yeah, I had it in the march um when it all went crazy and uh, it was before there was any tests um publicly available. Um and we were just at we were in lockdown before the lockdown began um and it was bluntly the absolute worst. I'm um, no mm. the way of putting it. It was terrible. All of us caught it in the house. So that was, at that point, um, my wife and I and my two daughters. Um, one of them has now fled the coop to university, which is brilliant. <laughs> Get in! Only one to go!
0: <laughs> I've got a 14-year-old and 11, uh, a 10-year-old, and they're not going anywhere. They think if you go to university in the rooms, they would. You've had COVID mm. about five times, haven't you? Yeah. I,
2: I, I never leave the house. Never yeah. leave the house. Don't. In, I don't like humans, so you know. So I'm catching it off the postman sticking a letter through my letterbox. It's the only <laughs> way I'm catching I can catch
1: yeah. it. I've been the same. I've caught it about five, six times, and I barely leave the house ever since I had COVID the first time. So I'm pretty much catching it from my daughter or my wife when they come back from work or school or some equivalent, and I'm like, "Hey, I'm fine," and they're totally fine. immunocompromised andy Dandy. No. <laughs> 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 it's awful. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, just for the record, I am going to roll the critical.
1: Okay, what did I get?
2: 81. Do you know what? Holy oh, shit. It, do you
1: know, this... what it, do
2: you know what it is without looking at it?
1: I it's certainly bloody dope, but I've got the book right here because, you know, always handy to have it just sitting around. Depends which edition you're in though. Both. Oh uh, well. I'm fucked if you rolled an eighty one. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> that's it's not good. Uh, have you got it? You're gonna get it before I do.
2: Oh, I've got it written down.
1: Oh, you got it written down. I've got it right here. What did I get? <laughs> leg critical, 81. Uh, broken knee. Arse! Um, the blow kneecap. Shattering my kneecap in several places. Get out of it! Bleeding, prone, stunned. Broken bone major. And I fall to the ground. Not surprised if I'm stunned. Clutching my minced up leg. I'm not happy. But, you know. See,
2: if
0: you'd have picked an arm, you'd have lost a finger. That would be it.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm a I kind
0: of need my fingers for for typing and stuff, though. Yeah, <laughs> do you need two. Do, do
2: you need all of them, though? I mean, we're all. We're, I'm, I'm a two finger touch typer.
0: <laughs> I mean, I can see. I I touch type with all all of your fingers. You see, so if I lost one, I would I would want its passing.
1: And... I tend to use a, about. Three? I, I tend to use about four or five at once. but I use my thumbs and I use a couple of my fingers on each hand. Um, I don't use my pinkies because. Really? Well, I, learned,
0: I learned to type many years ago, so I can actually touch type and look just look at the screen through doing oh. it. And you don't realise until you to touch type how much you use your little fingers, because they're, mm. they're for pressing your shifts and your controls.
1: Oh, yeah, so they are. Huh. Yeah. Okay, you're right. I do use my pinky. <laughs> Screw that. A Shattered kneecap <laughs> for the
0: win. <laughs> the thing is, I mean, you know, wheelchair, you know, you, you could be like an Oscar Pistorius with, like, have a false leg, couldn't you? Be fine, be fine. Yeah. They haven't caught up with hands yet, though, have they?
1: No, not really. No. Um, really bad, crunchy uh, prosthetics that don't quite do the job as well.
0: Yeah. Whereas, whereas you got a blade. I'll yeah, that'd awesome. it be, be Yeah, far, it? You yeah, yeah I'd yeah, yeah, up
1: for that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> should, should I, we can cut this out. Shall I tell you my Oscar Pistorius story very, very quickly?
1: <laughs> Why not? I,
2: <laughs> I, I, I was catching a train back from work. I used to work for uh, Coldmasters in Birmingham. Catching oh, a, nice. Catching the train back, Oscar Pistorius sat next to me. This was before his legal woes. And he sat next to me and he started playing music over his mobile phone. No earphones. Really loud drum and bass sitting next to me. And I thought, he's a bad un. nothing good is gonna
1: come from him.
0: <laughs> I should good. have waited till he went to the toilet and shot him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> i can feel the fury building at this side already at the thought of that
2: <laughs> next question we'll cut that uh, <laughs> oh no i've done it you've got to take a career
1: change andy okay R-
2: rat catcher or troll slayer
1: fuck uh rat catcher shit maybe <laughs> probably rat uh, yeah rat catcher because i don't want to deal with all the shame of uh being a troll slayer it would be a horrific life uh, No thanks. Um rat catcher, at least I can still have some form of self-respect, even if I am just bashing rats on the head with a club. Um, I can take that. There is a certain, you know, salt of the earth, rat catchery goodness. Plus, who doesn't want to have a small but vicious dog?
2: It is the it is the Warhammer ultimate detail. It oh. is the it, it is the one that caught it's my dog as pretty. well,
0: isn't
1: it? Yeah. Uh, you,
0: I mean, I didn't they? <laughs> Did you not know that? It's, it's... I didn't. You got it right there, yeah. I've got it right there, uh, yeah. You gain trappings at one point, and uh, one one of the trappings that you can find is a small, but vicious dog. One last one. Do we go can on. cut this. We can cut. No, go on. Because I,
2: I like to know this, so I can perform some kind of uh, psychological assessment and see where guests are. Mm. Mm-hmm. Would you rather have a romantic candlelit dinner with Constant mm-hmm. Drakenfels <laughs> or Manfred von Karstein? Manfred. I see Ma-
1: easily, um, because Manfred is a Karstein and the karsteins are ultimately uh vampiric Heathcliffs. Um they are uh the classic gothic vampire, which means if you can catch them in the right mood, uh you can most certainly have yourself quite the romantic evening. Um and you catch <laughs> yeah. them in the wrong <laughs>
0: mood. <laughs>
1: Catch them in the wrong mood, and you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Where with constant Drachenfels, you're just screwed. <laughs> um, I mean, we all know Drachenfels is Kim Newman's uh Warhammer port of Dracula. And mm. we all know Dracula is awful. Then we go, yeah. Manfred from Karstein, he's just uh oh, he's awful too. But of the yeah. two, he's potentially more likely to keep me alive, maybe.
0: Well, I mean, use you as a puppet, to be fair. Yeah. That'll <laughs> do. Just imagine this for a second: Manfred von Karstein having having a romantic meal with Drakenfels. Oh. I mean, does Drakenfels even eat? Uh, Hang on. Uh, he's does got von Karstein on. even eat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that bad. the old you know, drink, good, good bit of the yeah. old blood
0: the red color yeah.
1: yeah quite exactly um so yeah definitely the manfred of those two um i've actually had um in past games i've had manfred married to one of my pcs so it's a oh, character nice. that i've played in depth and uh uh with uh let's say great variety trying to take him far beyond just a simple stereotype that's generally used as the uh army list version or the slightly more enhanced version you got from say for example the uh lever necklace uh the lever necklace that was penned as a bit of black library book um that was penned in character by manfred van karstein and it uh, spoke of all his travels around the world and all the Mm. things that he'd done and also spoke to a far more rounded character than the big bad that is generally dropped in the typical battle version of using that character so yeah i tried to portray a slightly broader version of that character and one that was um not just another Dracula ripoff because ultimately that's his dad um Vladimir um so you don't want him to be the same you want him to have his own character you want him to have his own depth and when you bring in Vladimir you want him to feel like he's a completely different character um mm. I remember I remember way back discussing Vlad with uh Steve Savile, who was writing the novels um for the <laughs> For the Vampire uh, Trilogy as it was then. Um, that was quite some time, it must be about 2006, I think. Um, and he was very intrigued by the idea of him being a vampire Heathcliff, as I mentioned earlier, mm. and the entire line of them being that while simultaneously having this um, horrific bestial undercurrent. Um, yeah, good times. Not necessarily my favorite portrayal of the car stains. Sorry, Steve, if you're out there. Um, largely because I'm such a Warhammer fan, I expect all the Warhammer-y details, and much yeah. of it was just um, vampire details details or whoever happened to be in the army list portrayed out but there was all the other extra stuff that could have been used um around that too but yeah definitely manfred
2: was it a good was it a good wedding
1: yeah it was it was a ridiculous wedding. Um, it was as gothic as you can possibly imagine. Um, there was more black lace involved than you can possibly go down. I mean, it, it was literally an 80s festive hit um of black lace. I haven't listened to black lace for a very long time. Anyone out there who isn't British is not going to understand that They're reference. Not get that at all. One bear, <laughs> oh,
0: you know Appreciate you know so, do, do, do. Yeah, we all remember it. It's like an <laughs> abuse memory. We push <laughs> to the back of our mind. Okay, so this is the, the part of the podcast where we get you to tell us any ghost stories you've got, or oh, it doesn't have to be, it can be anything cryptid, although I'm not sure. I think the news you get to a cryptid in Edinburgh's is a, a drunken Scotsman with a kilt on, to mm. be fair, um, or any UFO things, because I don't know if you don't really know this. Griff actually lives in a, in a haunted house. The doors open and close on their own. Um, definitely not the wind. Or no, subsidence. it definitely is not. It's definitely not the wind. Uh, to the point where <clears> on one, we we, we spoke to um, CJ Roma, who is you know is a it's just kind of his, his job. And when I was editing it, I picked up a voice in Griff's audio screen. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So. So Chris doesn't like to talk about it much, do you, because he thinks they, they hear him. So
1: All right. So um uh a couple of things. Um first was my dad. My dad was a lighthouse keeper. Um, and you may not know this, but across Scotland, the Northern Lighthouse Board, which runs all of the various lighthouses, and most of which were built by the Stevenses. You might know Robert Louis Stevenson of Literary Fame. It was his brother's, yeah. they built them all. Um, and they designed them all. And uh, I grew up in a lighthouse w- way up north. Um, and my dad, when he was a supernumerary, which was the equivalent of a trainee lighthouse keeper, went from lighthouse to lighthouse to lighthouse, learning the ropes, so to speak. Um, and pretty much every single lighthouse out there had its own story of various goats, particularly those that were out in isolated islands. Now, you might not know how it used to work back in the day, because most people don't, but most lighthouse keepers, um, particularly through the like the 30s up to about the 90s, worked on a month-on, month-off basis. And that would be that they'd go to the light for a month, and then they would boat back or fly back, depending upon what sort of light they were on, back to their family, and they would be there for a month. So effectively i saw my dad in an average year six months um but for those six months he was there all the time right um it wasn't a matter of him going out to work or some equivalent he was just there all six months and then he fucked off for the rest of the <laughs> six months um and it was troops down to the local phone box so that my mom could call him every day uh he uh encountered multiple um different ghosts at various lights some of which were clearly nonsense some were just the uh well, all white houses were dry, and by that I mean they didn't drink alcohol. Mm. Absolute lies! All of them were soaked in whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean you—you you can arrive there, lick the stones, and go and get yourself drunk. There was that much of it out there. I mean, what the hell else were they going to do for a month by themselves, well, other yeah. than whiskey and magazines? Because that was the era. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's quite clear that a number of the sightings were nothing more than bored men being being bored and drunk hmm. um nevertheless one of them um, stuck with him and perhaps that was because he was young because he was at the time um and impressionable but it was the Green Lady of I can't remember which light it might come back to me before the end of the podcast but it was the Green Lady and uh he on a nice night made his way up the stairs and she was literally there floating Ghostbusters style in front of him. Not even the slightest, ooh, is it an apparition? Ooh, is it? Uh, she was freaking there and she, he wasn't drunk, he claims, um, and she was <laughs> floating there and she pissed off around the corner. He went around the corner and she wasn't there anymore. So um, that's a, a, just a nice wee story from my dad. Um, there was a host of similar stories um, around all of the lights. My dad saw, for example, when he was at Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee, um, he claimed he saw a ghost there as well. Um, but the ghost was working on the old building that used to be there before Nine Wells was built, which meant that he was a night watchman at this point, going, mm-hmm. uh, going through all the floors. Um, yeah. And because the hospital was built on different floors, she would literally come. Cut off in the middle, um, making her way along the old floor that was there previously. My dad swears he saw her multiple times. Um, on my, For myself, I have only a single uh, ghosty story which is not febrile imagination making up nonsense, um, which you we all have a little bit from our teenage years. Um, and that was at Games Workshop. Now, Games Workshop in Edinburgh, where it was originally sited, not where it currently is, was on the Royal Mile. Now, the Royal Mile in Edinburgh is a a long, almost mile-long road that connects the castle at the top down to the palace at the bottom of the hill. Um, And Games Workshop was about uh, about a third of the way down from the castle on the Royal Mile, and it looked just like a normal shop from the outside, but if you went down underneath into the lower basement, um, it went down into the catacombs of Edinburgh. Now, you might not know this, but Edinburgh is very much a layered city. Um, It looks like it's got itself the standard one, two, three, or four storeys worth of buildings. But because it's up on a high hill, there's often one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, sometimes 10 layers beneath that as it went down the steps of the hills. There's a host of tours you can take when you're inside Edinburgh to go down into these catacombs and have a little wander around and see what life used to be like back in the 1700s. If you're looking for a good example of proper tenement buildings from the 16th 1700s. Edward's brilliant for this. It's a great source of inspiration, particularly because it really does belie the standard, oh, in the late medieval, early Renaissance, it was all a couple of floors for a building. Nah, fuck that. Some of them were like 20 stories high. Proper layers of buildings all down the spine that is the current Royal Mile. Um, And it makes for a great place. Now, while I was there, uh, working away down the bottom, you could often hear nonsense coming from the catacombs. Now, in my time, they weren't blocked off, um, and while I was there, they got blocked off because I built up a new wall and got it built in place, and um, we refer to it as Troll Corner. Um, and Troll Corner was basically our there's nowhere to put this shit. Let's throw it into Troll Corner, um, <laughs> and it became the, it became the great dustbin of the Games Workshop store. Um, and uh, I remember the first time when I first arrived at the store, I got in there, I found myself some of the old original um, blister packs of Slan. Um, we're talking the old wow. frog Slan that you know that wander around with their tribal um, gear on, um, and a whole bunch of other older models, and a bunch of uh, there were some of the original Eternal Champion models down there. Um, uh, yeah yeah totally Um, that that was totally fun now the reason I bring this up is because there was a pervasive story when I first arrived in uh, Edinburgh that everybody liked to discuss about and it was the Lone Piper Um, and the Lone Piper was uh, brought about because apparently at one point a kid got into the catacombs a girl and everybody could hear her on the Royal Mile we're talking about the 1800s late at this point and they could hear her shouting help 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 from down in the catacombs beneath the royal mile and uh, she could be heard sometimes and so did what they could to try and find her couldn't so they sent a piper down to play the pipes so they could hear where the piper was and try to associate that with where they were hearing for that because they didn't know where all the catacombs connected at this point um so he pops down and he starts piping away piping away piping away piping away piping away there's a scream of a girl and the piper goes quiet Mm. and is never seen again. Oh my God. And the lone piper um, is heard every once in a while from the catacombs. Now, if you've ever been in Edinburgh, um, you'll know that you can hear a piper pretty much all the time. On, on the every street Because there's somebody sitting up there going... Hur, hur, hur. Give us a fiver, will yeah. So hearing a piper in Edinburgh is not exactly an uncommon sound. However, when we were doing stock takes down in Games Workshop, um, so that would take you in long past the standard hours for your pipers doing their busking out on the street. Um, it's all gone quiet out in the street and every once in a while, You would hear a piper without any real understanding of where it could come from and it came from troll corner and i loved that shit (laughs) literally loved it because i i I remember going down into the basement for the first time when i heard it i was 18 years old so i'm just a baby um and i knew the story at this point for about six months i would guess um yeah we're probably talking september 94 i guess um maybe september october around about that era yeah i was 18. um and uh i was down there and i could clearly hear it around about 11 p.m i've been down there a lot for games nights because we are games nights for staff and we we play around long past hours Mm. um and i could hear it and i went upstairs i could hear nothing i went back downstairs i could hear it and i was like "Fuck this
0: I'm out of here. To to be honest, I mean, I've been to Edinburgh a number of number of times, and we we did we did the catacombs tour. Mm. You know, there's the whole thing. There's Mister Boots, the guy that people hear walking Mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. And when you get into the catacombs, it's silent. Yeah, it really does mute everything because there's so much between you and them. So much stone. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So the idea that you could hear the piper, number one, way past when they would be still there playing, but number two. Through all all the rubble and everything else that's associated with it, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't go back there. <laughs> I wonder, do you know what? Though? I wonder what's in Troll corner now.
1: Well, um, the Games Workshop's no longer there. Um, it's a different store, classic touristy store, mm. sitting up on the Royal Mile. Um, but when I was manager there, I was I manager at that point. No, I was assistant uh, manager at that point. I blocked off the entirety of the era because we got money to damp proof the entire section because it was mm. beginning to rise um so I just blocked it off because there was no point in having it it just went down into darkness um, at the back um a sort of a pit um at the back and it just went off um it was nowhere near as interesting though as the Glasgow shop because at that point again the Glasgow shop moved but when I was the games workshop the Glasgow shop literally went into proper catacombs um there was just almost streets worth of uh passageways that you could go down to it was awesome i loved it as a kid um i, I, I looked is- i looked forward to going over to um the glasgow store to help out just so i could go down there and have a little wonder and go well this is awesome it's kind of <laughs> creepy but kind of <laughs> awesome yeah
2: is that was that where the backpack and torches? And a little short sword.
0: Ten foot which... pole.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. I can't go wrong with the ten foot pole.
0: <laughs> it reminds me of a story, actually. Um, many years ago, I used to work, by where I live is a place called West Arby Village, or where I used to live. And in West Arby Village there used to be a quick save. Do you remember quick save?
1: hmm yeah. I do.
0: And you, apparently it used to be an old cinema, and they used to occasionally get people to go up and clean the old cinema, and there was a noose hanging from the ceiling. Nice. Right? And everyone was like, the manager of the cinema killed himself and they never cut it down, right? <laughs> and for years, I believed this. I got once sent up there to, to brush. I don't know why I was brushing, there was nothing up there, it was just like <laughs> dust. I think they just did it to annoy me. And we believed this for years. People used to say they see someone hanging around the stairs, blah blah blah. And then when I started working where I am now. I got talking to one of the lads on my team, and and I told him the story. He went, um, "Yeah," he said. I used to work in that quick save, and, and he said and he described it all. a spiral staircase. yeah, yeah. He said, "I put the ho- I put the noose there for a laugh."
1: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, people love making up stories, don't they?
0: Yeah, he just said, "Oh, yeah, we we, we hung up there one day just to freak people out, and and, never, and we just never took it down." I did think it was a bit weird that someone would leave a noose if someone had hung themselves, but but that, that that's a uh, that's good stuff that'll go in our little library of ghost stories. So, what well, one thing you should know about, about me and Griff is Warhammer's our favorite game. Hey! More than Call of I, Cthulhu. I think you rock. <laughs> more than Delta Green, more than RuneQuest. Because Warhammer, I'll show you, it was the first game I Rune ever quest. bought with my own money. Mm. And this is the actual book hey! that I bought with my own money <laughs> to the point where it's even got like. Uh, uh, in it, and-
1: yeah, the, my, my second one, um, I think it was my second copy of the book. Um, has got the survey that was sitting at the back that you were meant to send to Games Workshop, all filled Uh-oh. in by very young me writing. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it makes me smile to think of the suggestions that I had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, obviously, I'm a great fan of Warhammer as well for a variety yeah. of reasons.
0: People have understandable. But we we were because this the whole idea was doing this podcast as we were we were gonna do make it all about horror gaming. But we, we mm-hmm. came to the conclusion that if you had a bit of a Venn diagram, where you be horror and where you get fantasy, where they cross in the middle, you get Warhammer. Yeah, you do. I think I think Warhammer's very horror based. Yes, I mean, it is. I mean, the powers, the the, the um the ruinous powers are, are vile. Yeah. In every in every sense. And that's not even including the Skaven.
1: No, it's not. Um at its at its heart, uh Warhammer fantasy roleplay was defined by the Enemy Within campaign. Um, it was a campaign written initially in the 80s and then into the 90s Um, and i would argue that of all the adventures the one that most people associate with the entire campaign is shadows over Buggenhaft. yeah largely because most people started the campaign um they played the enemy within opener mistaken identity Um, but it wasn't exactly the greatest story in the world it was very much a, a some things happen and then you're on to the next bit um Shadows over Bergenhafen was the first real adventure of the campaign and almost everybody that played Warhammer played that bit typically they then moved on to death on the Reich and stopped they got in, largely because they got a barge and they pissed about on the river um and they never get to power behind the throne which is a real shame because power behind the throne was kind of great um but the Shadows over Bergenhafen um is a call of cthulhu adventure under a completely mm. different guise it was originally commissioned as effectively a bloodless call of cthulhu Warmer fantasy adventure um that's what graham davis was there to create um even the name shadows over bergenhafen shadows over there's definitely something there. even the way it's um uh, discussing the nature of um odd languages being used to summon up ancient powers uh, yada, yada, yada. um it's very much a call of cthulhu adventure but fantasy, and that came to define Warhammer's tone in a way that almost nothing else did. Uh, The development of Warhammer from that point onwards was often Fantasy Call of Cthulhu. Um, with obviously all the trappings of all the rest of the fantasy world that they had. But underlying that was always that cosmic power, the destruction of the world mm-hmm. at the hands of the chaos gods. Um, and whilst it had a, a, not just a strong influence, um, a, a direct influence from Michael Moorcock and his extensive work um, in fantasy, um, I think it's fair to say that in tone, um, horror lies at the heart of not just a lot of Warhammer, but most of its adventures. Um, there mm. is that sensation of something going wrong. The normal world as it's being perceived has something terrible sitting behind the curtain. And when you see that horrible thing, it's going to be terrible. Um, and that's, I think, something that lies at the heart of one of the reasons why the game is so successful, because it's not just a DD rip um it's not just another fantasy jaunt in high fantasy land um and one of the things i've always enjoyed about warhammer is that uh everybody views it through their own lenses um some people consider it to be low fantasy some people consider it to be high fantasy some people consider it to be somewhere in between um and i think I think the conversation where it largely pinned down for me was one that I was having, again, with Graeme Davis to bring him up. Um, Graeme Davis was obviously a writer for the first edition of the game that he's worked on, successive editions after that, great friend of mine, Graeme, rocks. Um, and we were discussing before redoing the enemy within campaign for the new version exactly how we should pitch its tone and he said well right at the very beginning when we were writing the enemy within campaign and we were writing warhammer there wasn't really a concept of high fantasy and low fantasy it just didn't really exist of course Mm. there were there were books that when you look back on them, that's high fantasy, that was low fantasy, and you can easily categorize it after the fact. But at the time, those categories didn't really exist. Hmm. And when we were writing it, uh, we considered it to be a grubby fantasy, which meant that you could have all the high, crazy, magical stuff sitting beside all the low, dirty, day-to-day grind stuff, and they all could fit together. Um, And I remember sitting down with them going, that's it. Yeah, Warhammer, it's a grubby fantasy. Even your high elves, you know, they might live in their perfect tall towers, but behind the scenes, things are a bit broken. Everything it's 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 just a, as you say, a darkly horrific setting where every single society, even the dark evil, and I do hate that Games Workshop are using the word evil or good for any of their factions, um, but even the evil factions, so to speak, have their own boogeyman. Um, And Mm. I think a classic way of viewing that was there was one of the stories in I think one of the the chaos army list, possibly for fifth edition, um, where it was a bunch of orcs going up against chaos and they were terrified. Quite the opposite of the standard story of your, here we go, here we go, here we go, orcs, they're or football hooligan greenskins. Um, it, it was a bunch of orcs just going, we are scared of what lies over there. The great horror that lies beyond. And that to me was um, an insightful story into why the Warhammer setting for me at, at that point and later worked in a way that many others don't. And that's that even the bad guys are scared um and that's something that is often missed in the high fantasy D&D worlds where the bad guys are the thing to be scared of um and that is it Um, And that pervasive um, chaos, five minutes to midnight setting um, is something that always brought me back to Warhammer again and again and again, because the hope always exists in that setting. But it always has and is juxtapositioned by the absolute horror of what could potentially come. And Mm. uh, I'm not saying the Games Workshop, when they blew up the Warhammer world, did it in a good way. Um, I have uh, made my opinions known about that online in a few places. I don't think they did do it in a good way. But that doesn't change the fact that the world could be blown up isn't a really good potential ending. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I think that uh, that existential horror from the cosmic existential awfulness that lies beyond is most certainly something that made Warhammer a better setting. And blowing it up was a brave move, which obviously was done, as we all know, for financial decisions, um, reasons, (laughs) pardon me. Um, But nevertheless, uh, the idea of it, I think, works really well. I, I love it. Yeah, I've always been a Warhammer fan, to my core.
0: It's it's funny because we we discussed this with uh, with Pookie. Have you, have you heard with either Pookie from reviews from Relay? Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were talking about because Pookie's in our enemy within campaign, and mm. we were talking about the Venn diagram, you know, of like horror, fantasy, and he said there should be a third one. Really, and I said what, and he said humor because mm. it's always had it's always had that core of funniness running through it.
1: Yeah, that, that this was something that was discussed at length when we we're putting together the fourth edition um, of the game. Um, because it was something that second edition completely missed and third edition completely missed and first edition didn't. Now, first edition, it didn't always land, um, but the humour was such an integral component of the adventure building and the world building that to ignore that for what was hopefully going to be ostensibly the edition that pulled all the editions together into a, a new fresh edition of the game um was not just something that filled me with horror um it was something i felt would have been deeply foolish so there was a lot of discussion about it because you can't really have horror unless you have something to juxtapose against it um one of the most of our horror novels stories movies or whatever generally start with the mundanity of life and whatever that particular situation is so we have something to contrast the weird supernatural event or the occurrence or whatever Two, the more that you get to understand these characters in their mundane life, the more it can be compared to those characters attempting to deal with something that comes from beyond. For example, mm. and when you're at the table playing a game, you need to have these contrasts. If you don't have them, then the horrific isn't horrific anymore. All it is is mundane. It, yeah, is it becomes the standard, arm, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, and I've played a lot of horror games in my time, and It's something that particularly in the games I run, I am deeply, deeply aware of, because if you just run horror as pure horror, it gets boring Mm. relatively swiftly. And the multiple games do this. They basically go, it's dark here, and it's also dark over there. And it's even darker over there. And there's this dark thing over here, too. It's so fucking dark. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And as a player, it gets dull and it forgets that people have lives and they do shit. And I think that's one thing that Warhammer did really well. But with its career system, it remembered that people are just getting on with their lives and doing shit. And whilst the adventures often forgot that um, and didn't necessarily lean into it, and the supplementary material often forgot that the career system was even there. Nevertheless, that feeling that everybody has a job, that everybody has real life, it gives you something to contrast the adventure to the horror that these characters are almost certain to encounter, the terrible creatures that live within the Warhammer world. And the difference between first edition, which was almost tentatively learning what their version of cosmic horror was, um, the zinch naughtiness um, from Shadows Over Bergenhaven was pretty much just some sort of great old one sitting down there doing crazy stuff. Um, Zinch wasn't even really developed to that point. Um, but compare that to what Warhammer then became. If we have a look at the development first with the Realms of Chaos books and then the various Chaos army lists that came afterwards, and then the addition of a whole host of new characters, be they demons, be they massive entities like Bellacor or some equivalent. Um, And the more that these things are attached to the game and the more that they become Warhammer, the more awesomeness that you've got to draw upon as a player. And one of my biggest fears for fourth edition was that it would end up being Warhammer fantasy roleplay not warhammer the fantasy roleplay game um Mm. because warhammer fantasy roleplay has got its own tone um and its tone for each one of the three games in the previous editions had all been slightly different but Mm. they'd all danced around the same areas and i was very keen very very keen to try and make it a world where things like Belicor, um Festus, the Reach Lord, um, whatever nonsense you've got from the Warhammer world also existed in. The battle game wasn't a separate setting to the fantasy roleplay game. They were mm. all one setting. They were just taking it from different angles. Um, mm. Looking at different things and focusing on different points in an attempt to portray the world in a way that was most important for the game at hand. Uh, I wanted it to be that. Now, I'm not going to say it was entirely successful because I wasn't in the production job for long enough to Nail it in. I had a campaign organised to be put, uh, to be written by Gathorpe. Um, and me actually, Gav Fork and I were going to be writing it together called mm-hmm. Paths of the Old Ones um, and it was going to be the sequel to The Enemy Within and Paths of the Old Ones was specifically designed to be the Warhammer campaign not necessarily the Warhammer first edition rewrite of The Enemy Within it was going to be the Warhammer campaign the campaign about Warhammer about the component parts that make the Warhammer world what it is it was going to be running through Albion into Ulthuan, over to Nagaroth and over to Lustria um, and it was going to be discussing points of the, the great circles in Albion, Bellacore, all the high elf nonsense, and then moving over towards uh the old ones themselves and how it's the, the, the World, yeah, yeah the slan and the old ones in particular, and how yeah. the Warmer World became what it was. Gav and I built a story that was freaking mental. Um, it was proper Warhammer epic. Um, I remember sitting in Bugman's bar with him. We were sitting down, and we sort of looked at each other, and he was like, you know what? I wasn't sure I wanted to write for fantasy role play um because I've done all the jobs before. Um, but we've just built this extraordinary story it's truly epic and it's basically all the stuff that i've been working on over the course of the last couple of decades of my life pulled together and siphoned into a new story in a campaign that's about the warhammer world and this is just epic. I'm so happy to be doing this, which is why I was so gutted approximately three months later to resign from the job um, and go to Gab and say, terribly sorry, I can't write that with you, Gab. Um, Here's all the stuff that we did. If you want to write it with Cubicle 7, off you go. And he was like, yeah, we'll see. And he didn't. Cubicle 7 didn't want it. uh, That didn't happen. So I have all the stuff that I was originally going to do for that. So I'm going to be doing that as assuming that the Enemy Within campaign that um, I'm currently running, by the way is a very unique take on the everything campaign the one that I'm actually playing through do you want to see it um, ours? <laughs> it's
0: it's ours unique. Is crazy.
1: Um good, then you'll be well within my wheelhouse. Our my <laughs> one is proper crazy. Um I, I did something that nobody generally does with any within. I'll get onto that if you fancy. Um but oh, yeah. we're gonna be running the uh pass of the old ones as um Gab and I were originally going to do it as our sequel, assuming we still want to do it. Um we are well, we're just about to start Power Behind the Throne on our playthrough. Um our Power Behind the Throne, much like our previous one, is gonna be quite different to the one that's um, done and our horned rat and empire ruins is going to be not just different it's just a completely different adventure um they're going to be literally nothing like the published one because i didn't write the published ones um graham and i planned out published ones and then when i left they wrote a completely different adventure um and that's fine but it's not the adventure i want to play so i'm going to play a completely different one because i can um do whatever you want but uh just to conclude on my previous point, um, for our Anyway Within campaign, I did something that most, in fact, no GM generally does. Um, the Enemy anyway Within campaign was originally written um with the idea that any old random nod party can get stuck into it, no matter who they are, whether you're a rat catcher, a troll slayer, <laughs> um to Hark back to our earlier questions, or we a shopkeeper or a mercenary or whatever you might be, you'd fall into this story and you sort of get dragged through it until eventually you're making decisions that actually impact the empire as a whole. Now, the links between those adventures weren't necessarily very good. The whole plan originally, when Graham and I got together, was to strengthen all of those. Um, but I left again before a lot of that work was done. Um, but on my playthrough, the one that we're popping up on Lawhammer, we have made the story, the story about the PCs. So if you think of the entire story of the Enemy Within as it's presented, um, it's not a story about the characters. It's a story the characters tumble into. Hmm. In our case... It's 100% a story about the characters. So they don't have to have a reason to try and involve themselves with the overall plot. They don't need to suddenly come up with random nonsense for why they want to be involved with chasing cultists or whatever. They are directly involved. I'll give a single example, because I don't want to wax lyrical about this because it's dull to people who don't necessarily know about it. <laughs> um, but in the War of Fantasy roleplay starter set that we put together, um, the central family in that that had problems with the young Freud family, um, a big noble family down in a town called Ubersreid. And the Emperor and the young Freuds got into a bit of a mess. Now, exactly what happened there isn't explained. Um, all that's explained is that it went tits up and the young Freuds got kicked out of their own town. A character is mentioned there called Gerhardt of House Young Freud, and Gerhardt's a young kid who's a student living up in Altdorf. And when um the shit hits the fan and it all goes wrong, he goes into hiding. He's one of the characters in our playthrough. Um Gerhard. Uh, he, the reason that, that character was originally added to the starter set was to use when we did an Anyway within actual play officially because we were originally going to do an actual play officially for fun because mm. why not yeah. um and I seeded that character in for that very reason so one of our players is playing Gerhardt, um which means he's intrinsically tied through to all the events in the starter set which were all written to support the upcoming release of the enemy within all of the events that happened in the Strike happened because of the enemy within which means that his character is intrinsically linked to the enemy within. His family is intrinsically linked to the central plots of the enemy within and what's happening there. And it means that the plot is effectively his plot. But the same can be said for all six uh, PCs, but with different angles. So it, it means that we don't have that, why is my character motivated to do these things? What's my motivation? Why am I doing this? Because <laughs> you're the only one that knows about these cultists. Yeah. And they're scary, so I'm out of here. Um, Which is obviously not the most heroic way through, but because Warhammer is often given that edge of, these are normal people trying to deal with abnormal situations. And you always have to suspend your disbelief because there will come a point where the character goes, fuck this. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, have you seen what we've just seen? fuck this, I'm out, I'm I'm out, that was horrible. So we've overcome that particular step by having all the characters um, be not just motivated to pursue what's sitting in front of them, but needing to pursue what's in front of them for their very lives or for whatever other reasons they're individually motivated by, which makes the campaign much more personal. And it's their story rather than a story that they're wandering through. And that, for me, has been super fun Mm -hmm. because it means we can take an old campaign that has got a lot of rough edges and completely repurpose it around a group that are intrinsically tied through to all of its plots and it also means that we can look at those plots and ensure that all of them are properly tied off because I don't know if you've read the full campaign as it currently stands most of the subplots are not tied off it annoys me to this day they were supposed to be um so that's something that we're going to be doing through our playthrough as well Um, it's fun um, if anyone's out there who wants to watch an actual play of it ours gets crazy but feel free to do join in
0: <laughs> uh, uh, ours is ours is beyond crazy because the other week we were we were doing Death on the Reich and we went into the inn um, where was it oh it's it's the it's the bit where you you're talking about stuff not tied off it's yeah. the, uh, the see
2: these the guys think this is actually in the book but it's not mm-hmm. at the Shepherd fest there's the herb list yes and, and there's the red barn yep well we haven't got a herb list I forgot at the Schaffenfest to introduce her, so I repurposed it all as, if you come to our village, we're having a problem with a troll. We've got a troll slayer. And if you do it, we've got a brewery. And then... I had to completely reskin it all on the fly because all that bit doesn't really make sense, but I'd already mentioned it, the from Fest. And-
1: so I cut that. Yes. And it was going to be originally cut from Death in the Reich in the revised version and moved over to the companion volume because that entire section um, provides nothing to the plot, literally does nothing. It's a waste That's of time. That's exactly
0: what Griff said to me. <laughs> yeah,
1: if,
2: if, if you rescue her and you and go what's going on oh it's some demonologist in yeah
1: I, I, literally nothing's written about that it's like what yeah so it makes me go red-faced mad um that entire section <laughs> um uh great when uh, just to give you an idea of how that came to be because that was just as I was leaving I'd received the death and the right text and Graham and I basically had a. Uh, a work schedule. Graham would do all of the updating of the text and smoothing it all back together into one new form, Mm. adding everything that he'd wanted to add first time around. I'd take it on and I would, to put heavy quotations around it, new Warhammer it. Um, in that I would add all the things that should have been in there if it had been written with everything that had happened over the course of the last 20 years of Warhammer taken into Mm. account. Mm. Um, Now, for some adventures, that doesn't mean an awful lot needs to be added, but for some, it means a lot needs to be added because a lot of the material was a bit odd or it just missed out stuff that had been added to the Warhammer world. Just simple things like the whole Colleges of Magic, for example. Mm. Um, And Mm. the basics of how magic works in the Warhammer world is quite different to how it was originally done. So it was my job to take the text and add things and importantly look at it and say I've played this because i played Death the Right what 27, 28 times by the time that I was going out. I, right. I know which bits work and which bits don't. And I, my job was to go into it and go right. Um, cut, 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 cut. And that gives us space to now write and add in all those extra bits. Let's make the red crown have a point. Let's do something with this cult. Let's add extra parts here. There was going to be an entire section inside Death the Right that was about Dunkle, but not Dunkelbird, pardon me, um, about Grisenvolg, and another part about Kemperbad, just explaining it in the same way that in any means shadows you got yourself uh, an entire write-up for big nothing at the back of the book mm. and that was going to be added it was going to have a whole death in the right for example is going to have a whole section on how to use endeavors when you're on the river So, you can uh, do yourself a bunch of side adventures or whatever as you're making your way along the river. Um, That was all going to be added as appendices as well. So, loosely, my part of the writing was all of that, but I left. So, none of that happened. And all that was given, all they had was the text from Graham, which was the original text. So, you'll find that Death in the Reich is pretty much just the original text, which is not what yeah. neither Graham nor I wanted to be the case. Yeah. So Graham was left going, oh, well, never mind, that's not what we <laughs> planned. Um, and I was like, oh, well, never mind, that's not what we planned. Um, but yeah, as a single example of the craziness in R1, we uh, to explain events, we had one session which took place 200 years earlier in the um, Privy Council of Magnus the Pius explaining things that would come later. Everybody played one of the council members um, on Magnus Advice. Uh, I was Magnus um, Vollins, if you know who volens is. He was the original uh, the original founder in many respects of the Colleges of Magic, the first light wizard, um, although he wasn't just a light wizard back then. So um, they were doing things. We had an, uh, another one where they were playing cultists, another one where they're doing other things so that we could provide context for all the details. Um, our most recent... Um, Christmas episode no the New Year episode which just went up was an episode explaining what happened in the Volkshalle, um which is where all the great politics are organized for the Reichland and for the Empire as a whole uh, when Ubers Reich was taken so what occurred why did the Emperor do what he did yeah. um and there's a lovely bit that, that bit that old adventure is done from that perspective but that came from quite an unreliable narrator um if you've ever played Total War Warhammer yeah yeah and total war I've, I've dipped into it yeah there's a character in that called the advisor who basically speaks to all of the various factions and gives them advice um, and he is known as dodgy johan in my game because of reasons um, and uh, he figured out that he could you don't need to know the details but he breaks the fourth wall and speaks directly to the audience because he finds out that he can do so, and it will activate his magical artifact by doing so, allowing him to see what happened at the beginning of the year in Hexensnacht when Ubersreich, uh was taken. Um, and he, speaks directly to the audience um and says I need this and his artifact um wakes up so that was a fun aside um because I got to speak directly to camera and my players were all very confused and that was super fun um and they all got to play different characters inside the Volkshalle, um seeing how that all played out um and the episode before that we had go Trek pop up can't go wrong with a bit of go Trek um nope (laughs) Um, and the the episode indeed was called um, I think it was something Unto Death uh, largely because that's one of the war cries that Blind Blessed who plays Gotrek in Total War um, bellows out as Gotrek so I had him do that war cry in the middle of the session which was a lot of fun Um, Yeah, our our Warhammer is proper mental, it goes all over the place, we don't just do standard sessions, Um, although the majority of them are standard sessions um, we also have special sessions that provide context to the overall adventures. Um, mm-hmm. And um, for those of you who have read my GM blogs, which are hidden away under our patron, because I'm a, I'm a horrible person that doesn't want his players to read them. Um, <laughs> it's actually the real reason. Um, but the most recent one um, was approximately 12,000 words explaining what was actually going on. And there has been somewhat of a head popping, wow! And that was largely because a lot of that was part of my original plan for what the enemy within was going to do. But it completely recontextualized Castle Wittgenstein, which is, for those of you who played Warhammer, one of the primary locations in Death in the Reich. And uh, there was a real moment of, uh, are, are we the bad guys? <laughs> are we the baddies? Always. <laughs> <laughs> um, which was lots of fun. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and it's very possible one of my players is going to end up getting married to uh one of the Wittgensteins, as you do.
0: Do you want to just want to backtrack on something you said uh, huh? earlier? Was you were saying about um, you know, people generally just have jobs and they go about the business, mm. and that's why the majority of the careers are just just jobs mm. to a large degree. I mean, you've got your likes of your troll slayer, which is a bit different, and maybe you know, your priests and things like that because their job is to die obviously um but i think that's um it's with that for me that's where the skaven come in and i kind of i kind of get the reasoning behind the empire denying them because i think it's the idea that if you knew they were really under your feet nothing would get done
1: yeah um the skaven is a are, are an interesting enemy so to speak um within so to speak, Um, for um, the Empire in particular, because the Empire officially doesn't recognize that the Skaven exists while simultaneously most of the upper echelons are aware of it. Um, mm. And we're not just talking the Empire Generals what have faced against them in a Warhammer game the other day um, when they go out their little miniatures and holy shit, they're all Skaven. Um, <laughs> the, there are a variety of characters who have dealt with the Skaven directly, a variety of characters who are not just aware of them, are actively pursuing them, working with them or whatever. Um, but in general, they are utterly unknown. And there's a couple of reasons for this within the setting. Um, the first of which is the Skaven themselves do not want anyone knowing they exist. Um, no. And uh, there's, that's referenced in multiple places. But if you openly spout Skaven, they assassinate you. Um, and mm. and there's a nice, we I think there's a quotation in fourth edition about a rat catcher um, who found out one of his friends got stabbed accidentally twenty one times in the chest, um, and he's like, yeah, 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 this this game definitely don't exist. But it's not just that. We're in a world where beastmen do exist and mutants exist, and ratmen in general are no different to beastmen Um, in the greater scheme of things. They're intelligent, sure. They're sharp, sure. They can wrap themselves in whatever cloth they want to try and hide their features. But in the greater scheme of things, in a world where beastmen do exist and are recognized, skaven have a really easy out. They're just beastmen. Mm. And that's what most people will see them as.
0: I would buy that, other than Terror, Terror and Talapine.
1: Oh, well, Terror and Tal- is a is a 25-22 dated piece. Um, so it's near the end times um, and is very much an outing of the Skaven again. Um, there's also the second one where the Skaven themselves have depending upon which version of the background you look at use a variety of magics to try and hide themselves as well in particular algu and gray magic um and they tend to rise and fall so after they've had a billion other civil wars which this game do want to do and they disappear for a while um and they come back they do their big black page so they all fail so they disappear for a while and they become effectively folk memory um and then they return again and attempt to do whatever they want to do um i th- i think it was silly and it made no sense until you get into the world and you imagine yourself as somebody living in there, not somebody who's got the God view, not someone who can look at it and read the setting and say, well, all of these things exist. You're someone living in town X. Let's call it Tawndorf. Um, And while you're in <laughs> Towndorf, Staddorf. Perhaps, <laughs> Staddorf. Yeah, let's steal that one. Um, So you're living in Staddorf, and you grow up in Staddorf, and uh, you're aware that mutants are bad, you're aware that beastmen exist in the forest and you shouldn't go out there. You go to the Temple of Sigmar every festag for throng, um, because that's what the majority of people do if they're in, say, the Reichland, Let's say you're from the Reichland, the good old Staddorf. Um, And every uh, week, you're hearing tales of Sigmar, you're hearing tales of his great feats, you're hearing tales of how he was tempted by the ruinous powers and saw them off with a big Bosch of his hammer. You are aware of the concept of the great threat that lies outside and in the forests and how people are bad and should always keep themselves safe. They're always about defense or our good old sigma rights um, and defense of the mind. Let's tie a book to our head just to protect our minds from, you know, whatever might be coming from chaos. Let's wrap a book under our head. That'll fix it, right? A little bit of holy text strapped under my head. Fixed. Um, so they're aware of that bad shit. And when you encounter something like a skaven, it's it's nothing. It's just one of those. It's not special. Um, and the skaven who are actively attempting to hide themselves from the society at large um, can easily remove those who speak too loud. It makes sense. There's no great mass media. Um, there's no great way for the information to spread. Those who know know, and those who don't probably never will. And even if one city gets to know, that can be shut down very quickly um because yeah uh, it's it's just beastman as the story changes through traders through various uh road or river based communication um it's going to become increasingly more unbelievable you're going to move farther and further away from the prime source and it's going to inflate into something completely different and it will always in the end return to something that you yourself recognize and they live in a world where beastmen are real. Where sometimes, if they get into a a bad place, they are killed and strung up, their horns laid out above a gate to show that this is not a good place to come. If you're a beastman, um, that is what we should be afraid of. Living out in the forest, so don't go out there. As a reminder to everyone, you're immediately just going to go Talapine fell to basement, Stupid city.
0: Do you know what I would? I would buy all this except one of the old emperors was called Skavenkiller.
1: Yeah, except he's not. It's called Ratskiller. Ma- Manfred Rat uh, Killer, as he came, became known. He's only called Skavenkiller um, in some of the official texts from back in the day. Um, but uh, in terms of his actual name, it's Rat. He's called Rat uh, Manfred Rat uh because i, oh, the dra- I oh, did a
0: video for my channel recently on the scaven and and yeah the, 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 i mean we've talked about this me and just me and griff have talked about this not even on the podcast about about the certain things that define warhammer mm. and troll slayers and scaven for me are the two things that define the setting because they're just so different from everything else Dwarf punks well yeah the, the dwarf <laughs> punks that are fearless and, 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 and oh yeah and the hard to kill even they, i mean, I mean we we're talking about this the other week they're self-defeating. The, the slayer talent is self-defeating. I love slayers. I do. i are literally my favourite class. Yeah. But the idea, the idea of a, a, a slayer is you go out and fight things, yeah, until you have the, the glorious death that you know will will serve as penance. But the slayer talent means you can stand toe to toe with Prince pretty much anything. Yep. So you just get better. You don't die. Yeah. you just become harder to kill.
1: Yep, that's one of the best bits about them. I, I mean, I, I would go further than just Skaven and um, Slayers. There are, for me, in fact, um, I'll encapsulate that into our previous point. For many, their view of Warhammer is seen entirely through the lens of their experience with Warhammer. And that makes sense mm. because we all understand the media that we enjoy through the various avenues that we have walked down and experienced it with. And a lot of people who were playing uh, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay um, would latch onto, whether it's your Ratcatcher, your Slayer, your Skaven, mm-hmm. because they were the constant new things that were being thrust in front of their face. Beastmen, they're Brew. Um, and yes. in turn, they just come from Michael Moorcock as well. And they're a man, his Beastmen. Our chaos that comes from Michael Moorcock as well. There's a host of things that just have little in the way of originality in the Warhammer world. And obviously, they have been significantly advanced advanced over time they've been made their own thing they've been made relatively unique and new but at its heart it doesn't feel necessarily like something that is uniquely Warhammer where Slayers do where things like Skaven absolutely do because they feel unique Fimmer to a degree feel unique but they're deeply problematic for a variety of reasons plus the miniatures didn't sell well so they never really took off very well um so For the role players, you tend to find that they focus on those few because they're the ones that they know. But for when I was looking at fourth edition, one of the things I was very keen to try and ensure that we did was Ensure that things like the Slan would get in, because they are pretty Mm. uniquely Warhammer. They do something that's quite different. They're brilliant. (laughs) Okay, many of the High Elf and the Dark Elf units are uniquely interesting. Um, the elves of Warhammer have been taken significantly beyond their original Tolkien stroke Melnivonian roots. Um they are Mm. they are still deeply Melnivonian to their core, um, if you know your Michael Moorcock uh writings, Mm. um, but they are ultimately now something quite new. And they've got a lot of relatively unique units, relatively unique positions, which I think are exciting to explore for Warhammer. Um, The same can be said for almost every single one of the species that really makes them something uniquely Warhammer, whether you're going to look at what Kislev has become, particularly as we look at what Total War have done with it, particularly with Cathay as well. And these are all super exciting. And that was something I was very interested in trying to ensure that we got into the game because for most people who play war fantasy roleplay they're only exposed to those few units those few new things that they got mm. from that game and there is so much more in warhammer now that is unique and interesting and exciting and should be playable um, and mm. should be accessible because that is ultimately what um, the game should be. It should be Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, not Empire Fantasy Roleplay, uh, which is yeah. loosely um, what it gets cornered into again and again and again.
0: It's like the soul Coast, isn't it, in D D?
1: Yeah, it is.
0: There's, there's the, the the meme like Forgotten Realms, Remembered Realms. Yeah, and it's just a sort of literally the soul Coast. Do you know it's funny because I was back in the day, I was obsessed with the slant. And there was nothing on them. And the IDF, I love the idea that they're almost like um, like Mayan or Incan, aren't they, yeah, with the cigarettes and and the most the most powerful wizard. It's not even alive. He's dead. Mm-hmm. He's literally a corpse, and he's more powerful than anyone. Like Lord, Lord Croak, isn't it? Yep. And I'm glad. I'm, I mean, I'm glad Cubicle Seven had done a lustrous book after all this time. Yeah, they've
1: moved in finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. And,
0: and they're going to be doing a campaign, and I think it's going to going to be in lustria
1: i hope so because it's um yeah because um i'd already built one um and it should have been out by now (laughs) um and that would just make me happy just to see um the greater warhammer world be explored um when i I moved on as producer um of the game so that was at just after the core book was finished because i wasn't producer for the core book um i wrote huge chunks of it I was like lead writer on parts of it and then I gave it to cubicle seven and they edited it into whatever shape they wanted it to be yeah. um uh, I then moved in as producer and I, they had already commissioned the enemy within so that was like 12 15 books um and they've commu- commissioned rough nights and hard days Uh, The starter set wasn't really in place at all, so um, I I built that, which was handy. Um, And my first look at it was, holy crap, Sticks, we're just doing the Empire again. And whilst that is a really solid place to begin, and it will grab a significant number of readers because of that, um, Mm. it's not Mm. really going to grab the Warhammer crowd. And that's the bigger crowd for Warhammer these days. Warhammer Fantasy roleplay is niche. Warhammer is not as niche. Um, We should be going further. So my first, um, as I say, development was Albion, Ulthuin, Nagarov, lustria that was campaign one the campaign two was going to go in the opposite direction over into the darklands and arabi, then, uh yeah. no no um the opposite direction over into kislev darklands oh, okay, chaos yeah. dwarves mountains of morn um so we get into the ogres over there and then the third campaign was going to go south down towards um Neckar and arabi Ita, um and hmm. through tilia and the like and everything was laid out for doing that um but yeah sadly i moved on and for me i figured that was super important because it should be warhammer fantasy roleplay not empire fantasy roleplay as i said before and mm-hmm. and yes it makes for a really nice solid beginning but there is so much more potential for the setting and it's something that um on the lawhammer side because we're going to be playing this for however long we end up playing uh, um, online for our actual play we're going to be developing into that i mean one of our characters is nip and eat, um and uh she's awesome um she's brilliant um so one of the characters there is um getting an awful lot of extra development for N- Nippon because these workshop never did the last thing they did was would create a, mm. create, a language, create a religion called vipto um that's <laughs> That is very bad, given that it's uh, taking somebody else's religion of Shinto and making a joke out of it. It yeah. gets even worse when you go to the orange simpka, okay, because Richard Halliwell's car was literally an orange Simca, um, and using that as your other um, major religion. It's a funny joke, and, it's, and it, you know, it's a joke that works really well in the past, but mm. using that for your current mm. material, not so good. Mm. It's not a good look. <laughs> um, so yeah fixing that is well worth mm. doing so yeah there you yeah.
0: go well I mean to be fair Cubicle 7 did announce that they're doing a book on one.
1: Yeah, which is good.
0: Yeah, and the because weirdly, the reason I got onto the Skaven was I went to Gen Con two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to just, just stand there chatting at the Cubicle 7 stall. And I got chatting to T.S. Lucart.
1: Ah, T.S. is the best.
0: Oh, he was an awfully nice fella. And I said to him, um, I said, I ran that camp, that that, that whole book. And he, he was like, he was really kind of pecked his interest. I said, do you know what the best was, was for me? The best bit. And he went, what? I said, do you know at the very end where you go and there's the statues... And, and he actually, like, teared up slightly. I, I said, we remember. And he went, oh, someone got it. And, it, and then we, we started talking, and I said, you need to redo Stone and Steel. Mm, so true. Mm, because it's ludicrously hard to get hold of, and dwarves are one of the most popular races to play.
1: Totally are. Yeah, totally are.
0: Agreed. We've got some good questions for you here. Shall I go first, Griff? Yes. Okay. Uh, what was the first role-playing game you ever played, and how did this affect your view of, of role-playing games going forward?
1: All right, so um my very first one was the fighting fantasy role playing game, which you may or may not be aware of. It came in the book with like yeah. a Tiger Man on the front or something like that. Yeah. And my.
0: You were talking about that not long ago, <laughs> weren't we?
1: Brilliant. Yeah. Um, and my <laughs> mum ran it. um And my mum, being the arty sort of person she was, she uh, took all the pictures and she created handouts for all of it by just drawing them herself. So when a particular mm. creature was encountered, she could go, bam, bam and show it to us (laughs) which was super fun and I played that with my mom and my dad and my brother and my grandmother um, I was pretty young um, and to give you an idea of what this game was like we uh, really didn't know necessarily what we were doing my dad played a character who had next to zero intelligence and was called Zombie the Great um, and Zombie the Great whenever he attacked Death, he would go
2: zombie zombie rah, rah, rah,
1: rah, which was funny my grandmother who was a great fan of uh, the Musketeers uh, named her character D'Arpagnon and D'Arpagnon was basically D'Artagnan, um, I w- <laughs> and that was it. Um, I-, I was playing a wizard that I can remember almost nothing about. Um, and we stomped our way through that super simple rules. Um, but it impacted me in a variety of ways. Number one, my mum and the way she GMed was to present pictures and handouts, mm. and she offered a visual. Uh, aspect to role playing that I never really lost. And whether that was through the theater of the mind and ensuring those visuals were described at least enough so that individuals could create their own visuals Mm. or alternatively providing them directly, um was for me something that became came hand in hand with role play i i mapped everything i drew everything from my players when i gm'd um not that long after that um i sketched pretty much every npc that people encountered at one point or another and they weren't necessarily very good i was a i was a kid and a teenager i wasn't that great but those skills ended up becoming my professional skills um as mm-hmm. we mentioned um earlier i did all the handouts for massignal thotep i did all the math the maps for massignal thotep i did a bunch of the diagrams that explain how the adventures are all hooked together inside um masks as well and that was a stupidly big job there were literally hundreds of pieces in that one um yeah. but but super fun and that impacted how I not just play the game but it's how I approach the game for others as well um and my dad and his zombie zombie rah 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 rah, rah, rah changed everything because everyone else when I was at that age encountering role play most of them were playing things like DD or whatever um, for them, it was almost a tactical simulator For as they move through dungeons and they killed some bad guys, but it wasn't role-playing in the I'm playing a character type. It mm. was mostly role-playing as I'm rolling dice, my character's doing well, did I kill that orc? Yeah, that kicked ass. Um, where my dad was 100% playing a character all the time, getting into it, having a laugh. And he brought to the table an extraordinary sense of humour, um, which significantly changed everybody else's enjoyment at the table. And that didn't just impact me, That that initial opening of the eyes, the removing of the scales for what role-playing could be, impacted everything I did from that point onwards, while I encountered other players and I started playing a whole host of other games, whether it was Stormbringer, Call of Cthulhu, Warhammer, whatever it might be. Um, A lot of RuneQuest and RuneQuest starter set is just sitting there beside me just now. Um,
0: We love RuneQuest on this show.
1: (laughs) I love RuneQuest also. Um, And whilst I was playing all of those games, I just wasn't happy with the simulation alone aspect. those gaming parts were an essential component of roleplay, but for me, the big, the big bit was the stories and the characters. The human element, for all we might have been dealing with other species, but the human element, the part where we were telling a story collaboratively, which had often beginnings, middles, and ends, and that was what created the true memorable moments. Sure, you might have got that crazy dice roll where you critted, I don't know, a greater demer with a simple plus zero magical dagger, stab 6666 holy shit I think I've killed it okay that's always going to create a memorable moment because it's fucking awesome Um, but the truly memorable ones the ones that sat with me as I grew up were the bits when the characters did stuff that were unexpected new things occurred that just weren't normally going to come up at a table. Um, And I then lent into that hard as I was GMing and later as I was writing my own material and writing for other people. It was all about trying to ensure that the game not just had memorable moments, which are essential, but had a good story too. So that at the end of it, everyone went, holy shit, that was amazing. I really enjoyed that. Rather than... Um, We enjoyed it because we're getting together with our mates and we enjoy this shit, which is more than good enough. And that is what the vast majority of people do. And it's not a bad thing. But for me, I was always looking for more i was always looking to try and take it one step further to try and build the story a little bit more developed if possible and that is ultimately what ended up changing how i do my writing for role-playing because the vast majority of writers for role-playing don't write adventures for gms what they do is they write adventures for themselves and often they're attempting to be an author writing a story mm-hmm. which isn't the point of adventure writing what you're doing is you're trying to provide a GM with tools or a storyteller or a whatever you keeper or whatever you're going to call them. You're attempting to provide your GM with tools to do it themselves, to tell their own stories. So you're not trying to tell a story. You're trying to get somebody else to tell a story that's awesome. And that's a very different type of writing to simply portraying the here's the story, which is what the vast majority of adventure writing is. And it's um yeah, it's changed how I view the stuff that I create. Um and rookery publications, which we mentioned right at the very beginning, we're going through some adventure writing just now, and our first one's done, Ship of Fools. Um, it's going to be printed soonish, I presume. Um, and it's deep into Warhammer territory. <laughs> oh, man! Um, now I don't mean it's a Warhammer <laughs> adventure. I mean, many of the things that we've learned from Warhammer have been taken over. It's very much yeah. its own unique thing. But mm-hmm. um, the very first one, because uh, Graham Davis is deeply involved with it, is a multi-plot adventure. Somewhat similar to Rough Nights at Hard Dave's in, ter- in terms of its style, but but it's big. It's awesome. Um, and it's got a host of different tools added to that that we've never really had the space to develop for any of the other games or adventures that we've written, largely because there's always a deadline. There's always someone else saying it's got to be this, it's got to be that. Um, uh, this one, we were much more free to do what we wanted and it's kind yeah. of freaking awesome. That was a bit of a meandering answer there.
0: No, it was the right it was it was an answer. See, I've got see I've got one thing which is I've got a question, but I've thought of two other of the same example of the same question. I'm mm-hmm. gonna going interspace the questions with this is what do you think is Vihander?
1: So I backed Zweihander right at the uh, first time round because um at that point I was on oh goodness, which forum was it on? I can't even remember what name. <laughs> Daniel was was using at
0: the point. Strike to stun, was it? Yeah,
1: it was on strike to stun before strike to stun shut, Natasha shut it down. Um, And I can't remember the name Daniel was using at the time to post over there, but I remember the very first post that Daniel was making about we're going to make this. Um, And I second edition had largely come to an end and was looking to fill the gap um third edition was beginning to be whispered about um i knew third edition was coming i had no real interest in it in the slightest it wasn't the game i was looking for i nevertheless got it all because i'm a fan and can't help myself
0: yeah, um, i know what you mean <laughs> um
1: and and the dice were useful for completely different things for me um but uh, I, I played i played their rule set for a good six months to a year as well, but again, not my game. Um, And I was super interested in what uh, was being offered. However, it disappointed me uh, for a variety of reasons. My primary reasons were that it wasn't unique. It was just a different attempt to make Warhammer.
0: Yeah, it was a reskin basically, wasn't it?
1: It was. And it was a complicated reskin at that, um, which had all manner of gubbins Let's say gubbins added to it that made it complicated and unnecessarily so and i didn't find it was a game i had any desire to run at all um it was a game that I was quite happy to look at and say well that was a thing that happened mm. um but but <laughs> it didn't feel like it was unique or interesting what daniel then moved on to when he did other things i think was a much better example of how um his particular take on things manifested but um i i, I just the whole idea it's vihander instead of warhammer um it's so derivative and that ultimately disappointed me i was hoping for something new and interesting with mechanics with the setting with everything that could if you wish be used for warhammer away you go enjoy yourself but it was offering something unique now in time it slowly became its own thing mm. um and that's cool because as much like warhammer itself it started off as taking on pretty much a rip of everything else fantasy ever produced merging it together and then in time warhammer became its own unique thing um and in time i'm i presume as Viandre will eventually become its own completely unique thing as each edition passes. But as it currently stands, it's it still betrays its roots in almost every uh one of its offerings. And it's not really for me because Warhammer exists.
0: Hmm. Do you know what? I I guess Daniel Fox sent me a copy a while back because in I don't you know I've got a, a channel where I do hmm. reviews. Yeah. Yeah. And I got about 30 pages in and after seeing what was clearly the guy who'd written the book drawn twice.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought to myself, why would I play this when I've got Warhammer?
1: Yeah. Um, having said that, I've got the um through in my games room. My living room is completely kitted out for streaming in now, for obviously we do our actual plays mm. in there. Um <laughs> and one of the pieces of art we've got in there is the original Scribe from Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition. Um and that was by Tony ackland Um and that's Rick Priestley um uh if you didn't know it? yeah it's Rick Priestley it's, no, I didn't it's, know that. It's, it's an image of him that was done by uh Tony um and um on the very edge of it at the top you can see the word Xerox um as uh, spelled out like runes Xerox because <laughs> they use Xerox machines all the time in the office yeah. of his workshop um and that's just a lovely little detail that's on it but uh yeah and, and you're right and that was ultimately what I found where I was like I've got Warhammer and I have Warhammer in multiple editions this isn't providing me anything new it doesn't solve a problem that i have warhammer has a variety of problems because it's a legacy system that's holding on to a variety of mechanics that really should have been moved on from and Mm. third edition was an attempt to do that but it went way too far in its attempt to do so um and there is most certainly a really nice clean system that could be made and why hander isn't it And Zweihander is just an attempt to remake Warhammer. And great, that's great. But it is ultimately not for me because Warhammer still exists. If I was looking for a system that was, I, I just look for a new system. Basically, that's what I'd want. Yeah, as something that was a much more modern, much more dynamic, much more based around what the vast majority of us old bastards are concerned about. And that's getting around the table and having fun with our friends. We don't want to get yeah. caught up in all the fucking bullshit of the rules. Um, and the bullshit of the rules often gets in the way of our enjoyment. Um, as we're trying to look up page whatever, um, chap in the corner, probably have himself a beer too many. That's not going to happen. Um, we're yeah. going to be laughing about something else or whatever. So. Yeah, the the rule system didn't seem to fix. It didn't seem to address a hole that needed patched. All it seemed to do was exist. Mm. Um, Having said that, though, Daniel, I met him at um, Gen Con, lovely guy, as it turns out. Have you read Blackbirds? I haven't read Blackbirds, and I keep on meaning to. I've got a copy of
2: it. Zweihander at least gave us Blackbirds eventually. That's what I'll say, because I think Blackbirds is sufficiently different in terms of lore from Warhammer that it's its own cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. and it it's got really neat mechanics like i'm gonna tap my car to just kill everybody in this room you, mm. you know m- modern mechanics and modern thinking but it bombed it,
0: you, it really did um and i it was offering any though wasn't it yeah
1: i i watched i watched it getting developed because um i followed daniel over on twitter and i saw the development as it built up and a lot of it looked really nice you mm. know, I picked up a copy as a, i I'm a perennial picker-upper of things, mm. but I literally haven't opened it. <laughs> Which is embarrassing to admit.
2: Yeah. I say this, though. I absolutely love Blackbirds. I think it's amazing. I've evangelised about it. Never played it.
1: Never ah, did. there you go. It's always the think, way, though,
0: isn't
1: it? I, that's the problem. Um, if a game doesn't get played, what's the fucking point of it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: this is, I, mean, I mean, just look, look behind me. I mean, I've got, like, literally just shelves of this shit. Look at it.
1: Yep. Me too. (laughs) By the way, um, I'm either, with the books that I have, I've got a pile of them sitting over here, which you can't quite see but it's a pile, my reference for whatever I'm happy to be working on at the time. For me, I have an excuse, I feel, to buy extra books because I am using it to try and inspire me for other ideas, seeing what other people are doing, keeping up, keeping one's finger on the pulse, so to speak. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's a good excuse, right? (laughs) <laughs> um it's as good as mine yeah totally <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's a good excuse my, my problem is that um nowadays i just don't read them anymore i've stopped um because i've just got so much to do whether it's um writing my own stuff which i'm constantly working on um and the rookery for example there's constant we've got our own rule set coming out for the rookery we've got our own uh, adventures coming out for that and the adventures for it are system agnostic meaning that you can use them mm-hmm. with any setting so the first one ship of fools you could play that in Cthulhu you could play that in Warhammer you could play that in DD. it doesn't really matter it's um entirely open to any particular setting and we're quite enjoying that but simultaneously we're also going to release our own little rule set which I feel does plug a hole but it's a hole largely that I think is open because it bugs me hmm <laughs> and, and that's the hole I'm trying to fucking fill, what I need, <laughs> what I need for my games. Um, and ultimately, that's, I feel, the best way to write anything. It's the stuff that excites you and gets you going. And when you're playing other games and your frustrations that come from those games, you can then channel that into something that will hopefully be much better. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been fun writing this set. Good, so, so- good fun. I'm going to
2: skip ahead a couple of questions while we're here and talk about the Rookery, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, of course. I so
2: so Rookery, uh, you've done two things that I've got. Yep, I think that's the only two things you've got. So you've got yep. Well of Bones, yep. which is phenomenal. thank yeah, really love it, which for people who, who've not got it yet, go out and get it because it's a... It's a beautiful, transposable bit of lore and setting and darkness. And it's quite spooky. It's, it's like a goth wedding. It's a goth wedding. And you can yeah, move it around. Right. And then you've got Mother Hawfrost mm-hmm. who, who, what I'd love about Mother Whore Frost isn't just the fact that it's a beautiful bit of big bad. And you, you can sort of scale Mother Whore Frost. It could be just like a little local legend. But in the campaign, well, sorry, in the book, there's a there's a multi year campaign you can get out of that. Oh yeah, yeah. So what I'm interested in is these things are great to read. And as a GM, I could go. I work. I can work out how to stat that for Call of Cthulhu because mm. Mother Hor is Call of Cthulhu. Oh yeah, and drop it in Vason. I could drop it in Warhammer. Yeah. What mo- what motivated the move to sort of doing a system? Is is it literally just that yeah. that you have got this bugbear?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, And it is literally just that. For the Rookery, our core products are going to be system agnostic. Um, The Coiled Crown, which is effectively all the fancy cool awesome stuff that we'll build, um, is going to be system agnostic. But uh, we're going to have a Coiled Crown system sitting alongside that for those who want it, um, which is, at its heart, a super fast long-term campaign system, because the vast majority of systems out there creak at the seams after your 20th session. Um, now, 20 is cut sure, off yeah. for some. Some it's 30, some it's 40, but the vast majority you become so hyper-complex that you just want to stab yourself in the eyes rather than play the game. Um, or alternatively, they cap out. Uh, mm-hmm. you've reached the end. Fantasy Roleplay 1 and 2, is a f- and 3 actually, are fine examples of that. You've played the game, you've got through your first two or three careers, you have almost capped out. You're mm-hmm. almost done. And if you happen to be in a high XP group, which many people chose to be because they like getting shit. Um, because who doesn't? We want to get better well, yeah. and have fun and scale up. Um, they found themselves running out. And as a clean example of this, um, when I played the Past of the Damned campaign for second edition of warhammer of Fantasy Roleplay, um, we were playing with your standard mix of PCs. One of them was a noble. In fact, they ended up all being nobles in the end, which was weird. Um, but one of the characters was 17. And by the end of the first. First part of pass of the Damned, as we were making our way down through Midland, we completed the first adventure, and we're heading ourselves down towards Altdorf, which is the capital of the Empire. I had a look at her stats, and she was already more impressive than most of the big bad guys that were out there. And I looked at her and went, this is bullshit. Actual <laughs> bullshit. How the fuck can her character be better than the bad guys and haven't only completed the first part of the campaign? Mm. Um, I by this point was writing for the game and I pretty much pinged over. Well, this is bullshit. To which um the classic response was, Well, how many people play for that long anyway? Um, and the answer is for Warhammer, well, actually a lot. Mm. Actually yeah. a lot. It was one of the driving concerns for much of the original system design for fourth edition, where the there's no top end to stats, there's no top end to skills. Um, all of the careers. Every single last one of them have a level one, two, three, and four. Uh, so we're not just saying the priests of it, we're not just saying the wizards of it, which was the case for first, second, and third edition. Um, mm-hmm. where they might have split them up by career. Um, they said career one, career two, career three, career four, or alternatively, if you go to first edition, it was just one, two, three, four. Um, but all of them were tiered. Second edition had three tiers or four tiers of your wizard. Um, uh the priests had three, well, you an initiate, anointed high priest no priest anointed at four tiers um and we basically categorised that for all careers so no matter what you were you had a beginning a middle and the end and none of the other previous editions had done that they had all given you a ton of starter shit and the sub middle and only a few top end careers so everyone who played first edition tended to be an assassin a witch hunter a level four <laughs> wizard um and every party was the same and this is something I noticed as I moved around conventions I was speaking to people um before we even did fourth edition this is back in second edition all the parties that had been playing for some time were basically the same and they'd given up an experience or they'd moved to a different system mm. and that is a freaking flaw a massive
0: one. Oh yeah absolutely
1: so, so fourth edition gave um four careers for every one of the career paths and that was basically 64 in there so 256 careers inside the core set which was the biggest that any of the editions had done now it wasn't executed as well as I would have liked but the core concept was sound and the open xp was sound the uh increasing xp as you moved on was sound um it uh, we're playing a version of it for Lawhammer, right. and it's creaking here and there, but that's why I'm rewriting, because I can And one of the joys of Lawhammer is I'm rewriting every single last career, because I can. Um, <laughs> why not? Um, <laughs> yeah. I house rule like mad in any game I play anyway. Uh, but the core system, if you play it rules as written, um, it will last long term, it will last for 7k, 14k experience, 21k experience, it will work, it will have some issues with some of the skills, because and some of the career types because the plan for what was going to happen to those never happened because I moved on because I knew where the flaws were and I was going to patch them up in various books but I'm not there anymore so people who didn't write the system are just adding to it and often creating new problems or adding or to the existing problems Um, and that's That's inevitable for when other people are coming on because the core system wasn't written by them. And yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But um, on the rookery side, the long-term campaign is super important because that is the type of campaign I play. I want to play a Mm -hmm. campaign that six months down the line, the characters aren't gods the characters are just mm. part of the ongoing stories of that world i wonder but i still want to have that constant feeling of development and pushing on and becoming something new something the warhammer i think does very well That idea of shifting from story to story as you move from career to career um and loosely that's where it seemed that with one major thing and that is simplicity because i literally can't be arsed mm. um i'm too i get it I am too old for this bullshit anymore. And When we're when I was writing Warhammer, <laughs> when I was writing Warhammer, there was so much I wanted to remove that I couldn't. Um, so much that I wanted to get rid of. But simultaneously, there were certain things that were so key to the system, I was damned if they were going to go. Um, so kept them in. Fate points, for example, utterly core to what Warhammer is. And believe it or not, at one point, they weren't even going to be in the system. Gods, no, argue. Um, take okay, points are Yeah, that,
0: that would have core. been unforgivable. Yeah, to
1: totally. Be like, no, <laughs> um, just, just, just no. Um, yeah. so yeah, uh, the rookery has. Is- is doing that I'm building that at the moment um, we already have a deal in place for getting that all published and organized and getting that out there um but we on the adventures that we were doing we um went on a bit of a pause for a while as we organized um a board game or two we've got a board game dark Deeds, coming out it's in the printer right now so mm-hmm. it's, it's about to arrive so dark deeds is going to be coming out um that's a game by uh Andy Chambers and Mark Gibbons um and uh, I developed that one super fun it's the second edition of the game we've got another one kicking around in the background too and we were basically trying to figure out what to do with our adventures because we have quite a bit of material there but we're aware that we're spending quite a lot of time on it and ultimately if it doesn't pay Mm. we've got to eat Somehow. Um, So we were reaching (laughs) around. Yeah, totally. We were reaching around for a way to try and turn it into something that was going to make at least a decent amount of money because we have to survive. And it might bomb and it might go wrong. That's all fine. Um, We've made our decisions. um, But, uh, yeah, we just finished our first major adventure, Ship of Fools. Um, it's going to be supplemented with more PDFs similar to the ones that you've seen already. Um, They're currently getting pinged around at the moment and in the background as um, I work on them with uh, Mark and Andy and Lindsay. And I really enjoy them. They're super fun. And I think that your opinion of them, thank you very much, mm. is largely what we're going for. The Mother Hoarfrost Frost was very much a folk horror edition where the Well of Bones was more of your classic horror edition mm. um they were both um horror aspected um adventure supplements because well we quite like that shit. um but both of which had almost uh, a skein of civilization sitting on the top of it as well where if you're looking at the old wives that sit um for the for mother hoarfrost or whether you're looking at the sorrowers and the entire society um that they speak to um inside the uh, monastery where they are yeah, I, I really love it. And the, oh Nick kind the, can, the, the candle yeah, laboring
2: and agular. Oh oat oh, wives are awesome. I was there's the oatwives wives and then there's the entire sort of leaving a porridge, leaving mm. porridge out
1: leaving the hot porridge out of the pot. The
2: hot porridge to hope that you don't get frozen to death. Yeah. it's just, it just awesome. <laughs> it's just beautiful stuff. And yeah, and, do- and the one thing the one thing why well, here will I woke up it's it's solid writing it's amazing art the, the layout's great and it's systemless and mm. as a gm you could just run your eyes over it and it, your brain just knows what to do with it and that's really Yeah
1: better. um the the core idea behind that was that the vast majority of adventures are useless because they are pitched at a group that doesn't exist with stats that don't match the PCs that you have. A classic example to go back to something we've discussed repeatedly is The Enemy Within. The Enemy Within is designed to be played by beginning PCs. That's what it's aimed at. But the vast majority of people who play it generally bring in characters who've gone for a good few months in the lead up towards playing it. For example, when we played, I played 25 sessions before we even started, before we started filming, so that everyone got used to their characters, they all had backstories, they all knew who they were. 25 sessions, that's 2.5k experience normally, in our case we had about 3,000 experience each as we started, they were developed PCs. Which meant that the stats inside the enemy within were actually useless. And that is the case for the vast majority of adventures that are out there. How many times have we picked up a D&D module that says four starter or four level of this, that, and the other? And you're like, oh, well, I can't play that one. My is a path. Useless. And we're all, as GMs, already equipped to build the stats that we need for our players. So why the fuck am I providing you with stats? Mm-hmm. It's a pointless waste of time. And it almost does nothing. It's far easier for me to instead say, um, the PCs are, say, started at three. So this character here started at four. They're better than your PCs. This character started at two. They're worse than your average PC. This one's five. Oh, they're quite a bit better than your PC. (laughs) They're possibly in trouble. (laughs) Um, So you immediately, when you look at it, you see those numbers and you immediately go, that is something that challenges my PCs. That is something that doesn't got it this is something that's supposed Mm. to be hard this is something that's supposed to be easy and that is generally all GM's need um yeah it was very much written with um well not me in mind per se because it wasn't just me writing it but with me in mind um because I'm aware that the vast majority (laughs) of the books that I have on the shelves um every single adventure that I've ever run I ignore the stats I use the stats that I need for, to work best with my party or the game world I'm presenting. In Warhammer, for example, I'm super cruel. Um, I build stats that are reflective of what the creature should be. and have a literally no reflection at all towards what the PCs are capable of defeating, which means if they decide to wander up to a troll and give it a go, they fucked. And the, well, one hit they're dead almost every single time it's going to be bad which means they have to be clever which means that they have to apply themselves in different ways they have to uh accept it's a challenge and work towards that challenge the stats are fair but they are fucking mental in comparison to your average um pc
0: mm. Because mm. when, we, when we chatted with Dennis and he was talking about, about the idea that people think Delta Green's too harsh. And he was like, yeah, but if, if you see the king in yellow, you're going to lose the hundred sand. It, it's just that simple, because anything less would not be doing the king in yellow justice.
1: Yeah, see, where, um, I, I'm not going to say I differ here, but where I would approach that um, as a writer um, is to ensure that the players... Have got options, and the GM has options for utilizing those situations in a way that doesn't end the game. Because, in the end, ultimately, anything that is game ending is super unfun unless that's the point of the game at hand. If yeah. that's the point well, of the game at, at hand, it's campaign. super important yeah. that that does happen. Um, and reinforcing that is super cool. Um, but for an ongoing campaign, any adventure which is at its heart open to oh well that's what that should do you're dead is not something i like but that's one of the things i love about warhammer fate points it allows yeah. you to do that it allows you to have the crazy bad guy that everyone goes oh no i can't give that to my players um the number of times that in fact when i was producer just the first adventure that we released which was um if Could kill. Very simple adventure, sitting outside Uber's Reich. Um The first writing from that came from Dave Allen, who's um, I believe still working on uh, for Cubicle 7. Um, and it got adapted significantly because I was looking to undermine expectations. I won't go into any details for spoilers reasons, but I will say that significant changes were made to the adventure to try and um, make it more Warhammer. Warhammer is not the obvious route through is the best route through. Generally, it's um, the obvious route through is the dangerous, oops, I made a mistake. And that was tied into how that adventure built. And uh, in that, there's a rather nasty creature. It's pretty nasty. It can one-hit kill some players with relative ease. But that's fine. And when I was producer, the number of GMs who would pop in and see something along the lines of, I'm really scared of this thing. It's going to kill my players. What do I do with it? Do I play it with this? Do I not do it with this? And my advice was always the same. Just play it you'll be surprised at how well your PCs cope. Not only because PCs are run by intelligent people and they'll realize if one of them dies that this was a bad idea and they should perhaps do something else, Um, but it won't kill your PCs because each of them has an average of three fate points. They've got extra lives. They're allowed to mm. make their mistakes. One of the great strengths of Warhammer is that it's a good teaching mm. game for the Warhammer world, which means that you can put big bads right in front of their face. And if they act like an arse and get slapped, then that's fine. They they learn from that. And they go, next time, perhaps I'll be less of an arse. <laughs> perhaps mm. I'll take a different choice because I've seen what happens Is that character hit me once, skewered me through the eye, and my brain fell out my ear or whatever particular critical you happen to get and that's part of the fun of the warhammer system um but the fate points allow you to do that in a way that almost no other game does now, of course you get dramatic editing in a variety of games that allow you to just do shit sometimes but warhammer has this almost unique feel where you can start knowing almost nothing about the system and learn on the job mm. and learn in a realistic way that teaches the player not the character, because the character survives it whether they luckily duck down to tie their shoelace to avoid that arrow or whatever it happens to be. Okay, but the player learns because the player has realised combat's deadly or big monsters will kill me or whatever it might be and they'll also learn ways that they can gang up on creatures or do whatever else allows them to take something down. Um, And it generally means that as a system it works relatively well for mid-term and long-term campaigns in a way that some games like say Call of Cthulhu often fall down. The number of times I've got a TPK or close to it in Call of Cthulhu Thulu is sad, unfortunately, um, because there's not that safety net. Um, And for a game which is ultimately about pursuing that story, you want to keep them alive. That's why the pulpy game perhaps leans into that a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I really like Seven Dead does
0: as well, to be fair, though, doesn't it? With, with, with luck um, and, yeah. you know, pushing rolls and things like that.
1: Yeah, to try and make sure you get your successes. But that does not that does mm. more to resolve the whiff factor than necessarily the deadliest factor.
0: Yeah, yeah true.
2: Pop, Pop's got the system where as long as you, I think, is it 20 luck? As long as you burn all your luck remaining and you've got a certain amount you do what what you do in Warhammer, which is to write me out of this scene and I'll explain, oh, I just got punched off a cliff and landed on a haystack below. So yeah, so you get a chance to learn in Pulp Cthulhu.
1: Yeah, you do. Um, uh, Pulp has got a bit more leeway there, I think, Um, which Mm. I think works really quite well for the setting as a whole. And I feel 7th edition is more realistic arguably mm. for as much as that matters for a system but uh ultimately for the deadliness of the setting at hand and the tone and feel for the setting at hand I feel misses a couple of points that Warhammer does do not that Warhammer is anyway perfect it's got a whole host of other pitfalls it suffers um mm. but uh I think it's one of its strengths that allows you to um experience the game fuck up um and still play with that character that you've spent time investing in um because nobody likes to see their character die before they're ready for their character to die yeah
2: Hmm. yeah so so with the cold crown stuff have you got like ballpark figures for when that's going to come in because there are people in the questions asking about it
1: yeah so um I'm not going to give very strong figures because for example uh the first book is done the second book is effectively I mean, it's written, um, mm-hmm. but it's not um, laid out or arted yet, but it's there. Third book is sort of there. Um, rule book is I'm about halfway through that in a way that I'm happy with. Um, all the little extra PDF bits, they're all getting put together on the sides. Um, we have um, a Pretty realistic set of deadlines, which are in place. And we have already got a preliminary deal in place as well for getting them all printed and getting everything organized. And our plan is for most of that to be resolved for its first steps this year. So watch this space. It should be coming. Now, will we hit hiccups? Possibly. Mm. Um, uh, for anyone who knows me already, you'll know that my health has not been necessarily the best since I had COVID. Um, and sometimes I just go down for a couple of weeks, which is the worst. Happened over Christmas. Not the best time, but at least it didn't impact my work time Mm. (laughs) because I would have been doing, you know, family shit. Um, I didn't. Family were meant to come down. It was my daughter's birthday. Yeah, we didn't do that.
0: (laughs) It's one of those things, though, isn't it? It is cough, cough, hack.